0: Well, last week we started uh, in looking at a minor prophet by the name of Habakkuk, and I took about 40 minutes last week and kind of gave you the history of how Israel ended up into two um, divided nations and how they got to be in such a mess, and it was a little bit of a history lesson that I gave you over 40 minutes. Then I took about 10 minutes and explained why it's important for us to take a look at a guy like uh, Habakkuk and see what he's got going on. And so what I want to do then, just real quick, is give you the quickest overview uh, that you will ever have on the beginning of the book of Habakkuk. And so um, here we have Habakkuk over here. And then we have God over here. And, And the whole thing that Habakkuk says to God, he says, I don't like how you're running things up there. I'm really kind of upset with you because you don't seem to be listening to me. And so Habakkuk really isn't very happy with God. That's the overview. And you're all saying, why couldn't you have said that that quick last week? Because I didn't want to, okay? So today what I want to do is I'm going to read you a portion of the passage that we're studying. And so it's Habakkuk 1, and we're going to be looking at verses 5 through 11. And so let me start off with verse 5. It says, Look among the nations, and see, wonder, and be astonished. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. Now I'm going to stop right there. Because I've actually seen this verse printed on t-shirts and even on some coffee cups. Now, the problem with that is if you take this verse just as it is printed right now and you look at it, you'd go like, wow, God in the Old Testament, he's doing something that's really going to be wonderful. It's going to astound me. This is going to be something that is unbelievable. We just have to sit back and watch God do his job in our lives and we're going to be absolutely blown away and amazed. Now, the problem is if you just take this verse by itself and you pull it, Out of the context of Habakkuk, the problem that you're going to have is you're going to have that verse saying something that God says that God didn't really say. So we're going to start over, and we're going to read that verse, and we're going to go all the way through the whole thought process that God is giving to Habakkuk. So let's start again. Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on, guilty men, whose own might is their God. So God's really not saying what you might think he's saying here. It's not a happy you know, this is a great thing that God's going to do. Because what he just told Habakkuk, after Habakkuk complained to God, God responds to him, and, here's, and what he's saying is, is that you're not going to believe what I'm going to do. Even if I told you, you'd find it unbelievable. Because what I'm going to do is I'm going to send the Chaldeans around, and they're going to come, and they're going to wipe out this wicked little country called Judah. And Habakkuk's like, wow, okay, you know, uh, and it's, it's that little thing that goes on. And that's not something that you really want to put on a T-shirt. Could you imagine that, being on a T-shirt, being sold at Christian concerts? It would be in quotations, and it would sound something more like this. I'm doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. I am going to wipe you out. Love God. <laughs> put that on a Christian T-shirt and sell it. See how many of you sell. We are going to talk about God's justice out of this text that we're studying. But today, what I really want you to understand and what I really want you to get is that that there is something that God is doing. You know, we have this this kind of response about things. We kind of think of it in in kind of tiers. We have the high tier and then we have the low tier. And the high tier are those people that we think, those Christ followers, that we would put them on the, the varsity squad. They're the superstars. They're the ones that God talks to. They're the ones that God really interacts with. And then the rest of us, the low-tier, we're kind of like the freshman C-squad. We really don't get a lot of playing time. We're not that great. And why would God take a notice of us at all? But when you do that, all the truth in the Bible then gets disrupted because we've put it in a place where it really doesn't belong. We kind of don't see it for the way it's supposed to be seen. We don't sometimes... We try to make things more complex and complicated than they really are. So let me give you a little bit of an example on that. Um, In one of the episodes of The Simpsons, the TV program, and I know you're all going like, really, you watch The Simpsons? No, I don't watch The Simpsons very often. (laughs) But in that, Homer Simpson is reading the Bible and he comes to the end of the program where he's read the Bible through the whole thing. And here's his diagnosis after reading the Bible. He says to Marge Simpson, You know, those people in the Bible are really messed up, except for that one guy. That's it. That's the Bible. And and when you think about it, everybody in the Bible really is messed up. Now, we've got this simple truth that's being taught to us by God throughout the Bible. it's, It's really quite interesting to me, you know, Simple truth gets overlooked. And and so what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at some of the simple truth that God has for us because what you have is you have your Bible, you might have it on an app or it might actually be in your lap, but you've got this thing where the, the Bible is teaching this basic lesson over and over again. And it's this, it's that God meets everyday people in everyday circumstances and then he does extraordinary things. With ordinary people. And that's the amazing part. And because it's such a simple truth, it would be easy for us to just blow by it. And what we would blow by here is that God heard Habakkuk and he answered him. God heard him. Now, what we might be thinking and what we might be saying is, of course God's hearing Habakkuk. Who's, who, who, by the way, you know, God, he's not saying this to God. He's not saying, hey God, I really love you. And, you know, I do trust you. But I got this little question for you. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, I don't like how you're running things. And, and why won't you listen to me? Now, the book is, doesn't really set Habakkuk up to be that, that guy you want with you in the foxhole. He's not that guy. Um, but what happens here is, is that he makes a complaint. God hears it. And then he responds. God hears and he responds. And this is a simple truth that because we're kind of church people, and we've been in church a lot, we will simply just miss the simple truth. And we don't get to hear the depth of it. So what I'm going to do today is I'm going to unpack a rhythm that we find in the Bible that gets established by God throughout the Bible. And of course, you're going to think, well, of course God answers Habakkuk because he's in the Bible. He's a Bible guy. By the way, he has a name that God would say, yeah, Habakkuk, that's the name I'm going to answer. You're saying like, you might be going like, you might be one of those people go like, well, you know, my name's Arvid, and that's not a Bible name. Who, Who would answer a name like Arvid? God's not going to talk to a guy named Arvid. Well, that might be true, but I don't think that's always true. And so what we've got is I want to establish a pattern for you of how God actually works. So let me start off with this guy by the name of Abram. And God shows up to Abram, and he tells him, he says, "Um, you and your wife are going to have a son. And and that son is going to be, and you are going to become, through that son, you're going to be the father of many, of a great nation. And it's going to be absolutely wonderful, because through you and through your son, I'm going to set right everything that got messed up at the fall with Adam and Eve, where Adam and Eve messed it all up, through you, through your son, through your family, I'm going to make all things right. Now, Abram looks at God, probably has a little bit of a laugh, and he goes, yeah, uh, God, that's not going to work, because here's the deal. I'm 75 years old, and my wife, she's older. Now, you got to like Abraham, because He's really quite um, a seasoned man. Because even when he's talking to God, and God knows everything, he says, I'm 75, my wife, she's older. He doesn't give her age away, he just says she's older. That's all he does. (laughs) He knows better. He knows how to be politically correct, even when, you know, it wasn't a thing. And so he's kind of going like, yeah, it's just not going to happen. We're too old to have kids. And so, you know, time passes, and things are happening, and things are going along. And 15 years later, Sarah says to Abraham, we still don't have that son that God promised that I was going to have. Ha, ha, ha. That's not going to happen. So what I'm going to do, happy birthday. I got you this great little birthday present. Here she is. Her name is Hagar, this little slave girl. Can you imagine a birthday? I'm now making that part up. I don't think it was his birthday, but it might have been. You never know. So it's his birthday that he gets birthday present of this little slave girl that Sarah says, hey, I'm not able to have that son, so maybe we can have that son through Hagar. Maybe God will work this way with us. You know, it's a great thing. Oh, by the way, just a little side note. If you're a young family, if you're going to be having children, there are four names you do not want to name your little baby girl. Hagar is one of them. I mean, just think about it, Hagar. If you read the Sunday comic strips, you're going to come across Hagar the Horrible, the little Viking guy. He's not a handsome dude. Okay, so everybody nowadays is going to go, Hag, you named your daughter Hagar? What's wrong with you? Well, then you'd go, well, yeah, but we named her twin sister Gomer. Hagar and Gomer, no, don't do that. Love your children. Then there's two other little baby names you don't want to give your girls. One is Jezebel because she was a wicked, wicked queen. Okay? And the, and the other one is Delilah, because guess what she did? She seduced Samson. Don't name your kids, those, your little girls those names. Okay? Do somebody, do your family a favor and don't do that. Okay? That was free. All right. So what we've got, we've got this whole thing going on where Hagar, she does get pregnant. It's this, this thing that Sarah does with Abraham, and Abraham's going like, okay, thank you, I guess, but is this a test? Are you testing me? And she's going, no, I think we really need to do this thing, and so he's going like, well, okay, if you insist, and so Hagar gets pregnant, and she has a son named Ishmael, and and so they're going along. Now, if you go and you look at it, 25 years after God says to Abraham, so Abraham's 100 years old, 25 years after he said, I'm going to make you a great nation through your son, Sarah gets pregnant, and they have Isaac. Now you have Hagar and Ishmael, and you have Isaac. Isaac and Ishmael, they are not buddies. They will never be buddies. Matter of fact, this really gets to be a a horrible thing because with um, Isaac and Ishmael, there's this thing that goes on, and it's them hating each other, fighting each other, and it started off as a really bloody conflict between the two guys and their families, and it lasted even up to today. That's because Abraham and Sarah didn't obey God. They disobeyed God, and so God says, Ishmael's going to be a thorn in your flesh forever. And so what happens is that now that that uh, Sarah has this baby, she's given birth to Isaac, she has this deep disdain for Hagar and Ishmael. She can't stand them. She, she just wants them gone. And so she demands of Abraham, kick them out of the family, send them away. This breaks Abraham's heart because he's going, No, I, I'm not going to do that. And she's going, No, you're going to do that, mister. You better listen to me. And so they have this, this argument back and forth. And finally, Abraham has to relent. And so he's going to send Hagar and Ishmael out. Now, in our 2019 mind, we think, oh yeah, that's no big deal. Maybe they'll go down and get into a local shelter for homeless single moms or something. They didn't have that. You have got to start thinking way back like thousands of years ago because basically what's happening now is when Abraham does kick them out, it's a death sentence to Hagar and to Ishmael. Basically he, what he does is he says, here's a bottle of water. And here's a loaf of bread, leave, and good luck. Not a pretty picture. And that's where we're going to pick it up, the story in Genesis 21. And it says this. When the water in the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite him a good way off, about the distance of a bow shot. And she said, let me not look on the death of the child and she sat opposite of him. She lifted up her voice and she wept." Now, I don't know, I mean if you have children, you've had those moments when they get hungry and what do they do when they get hungry? They scream, they scream. Matter of fact, when a little child, if you're locked in a car with a child who's hungry and they're screaming, you really start to contemplate crashing the car into the ditch just to have a different scream in the car. Because that scream of a hungry child is enough to just drive you a little bit crazy. And so, Hagar's son is starving to death. They're out of water. They're in the wasteland. And she puts him under a bush. And then she goes a couple hundred yards over there. And she's trying to get away from the incessant screaming of her son who is starving to death. And the reasoning behind this is, it's not good for me to look upon the death of my son. So he's screaming, she's crying out to God in the middle of nowhere. Nobody can hear her. It's absolutely a desperate time right now. And then the next verse you read is pretty spectacular because this is what it says And God heard the voice of the boy. And the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. And then he goes on to make this promise to Hagar and to Ishmael that out of him there are going to be these 12 princes and they are going to become this great nation. So you've got this moment in time when there's all kinds of things happening all over planet Earth. There are things going on and things that are are calling for God's attention and yet in all the midst of all the things that are going on Earth, he hears the voice of a crying little boy under a bush out in the wilderness. God's aware of what's going on. He's aware of that out in the middle of nowhere, there is something that grabs his attention. Now, here's the temptation we usually have with this. We like to downshift it, and we like to think this way. Well, he's a Bible character. Of course, God heard him. The Bible characters are there to show you that God operates in a very real world. He operates in that world. And by the way, the Bible's pretty gritty. I don't know if you've read the book of Genesis, but you could change the name of the book of Genesis and give it a new name and call it the the, um, Dysfunctional Book of Families because they're so highly dysfunctional in Genesis. You've got to read it. Matter of fact, it's so dysfunctional, it would actually make a pretty good Jerry Springer show. That's how bad it is. And there's so much dysfunction that it's hard for us to get our heads around it and to fathom it. But the part of it is is that in the middle of the dysfunction of these families written about in the book of Genesis, God still interacts with those people. He invades their lives. He comes and he ministers to them and he empowers them to do things. And then he comes along and he sets them free. That's what he does with dysfunctional families. You all should have said amen and hallelujah. Because that's a big deal for us. But if we just stay in the Old Testament, let me just carry this on a little bit. Because in Exodus, chapters 2 and 3, you've got Moses who's out watching. He's run away from Egypt because he's killed somebody. He's married a Midianite. And his father-in-law, Jethro, says, Hey, Moses, my son, go out and take care of the sheep. And Moses is going no problem, I don't have to interact with anybody, I'm going to have a great day, and so he's out watching his sheep, and all of a sudden he sees this this bush that's caught on fire, but it's not being consumed, and it's kind of scratching his head, and he's going like, something about that bush that's just a little bit odd, so he walks over to investigate it, and lo and behold, God's in the middle of that bush, and so God has something that he wants to say to to Abraham and when God speaks he speaks to him and he says this I have seen the affliction of my people that is Israel and I have heard their cries. Did you get that? I have heard their cries. We've we've got this thing going on. And so Moses actually becomes the response to the affliction. God's response to the affliction of the Israelites in Egypt is to send Moses to let them go free. And that kind of a thing just keeps getting established in the Bible. It keeps happening over and over again. Lots of things go on there. Now, let me help you understand this from a different perspective. So if you think about World War II, the beginning of World War II for for the United States, when Japan bombed Pearl Harbor and a couple thousand people were killed, what did the U.S. do? They put together one of the biggest and strongest, the biggest, the strongest military machine ever to walk, on planet Earth. And then they attacked the Japanese on this front and the Germans on this front and they were, went after it until it was completely finished and World War II was done and we took care of business. And then 9-11 came along. And what happened in 9-11 is that we said, after all of that went around, it rallied us back up and what the United States says, we're not going to forget that. You don't, how dare you to assault us on our land? How dare you do that? And so then what we did is we invaded Afghanistan and then later Iraq. And who knows who's going to be next with the terrorist stuff going on. And by the way, I'm not making a political statement here. Don't get me wrong. That is not what I'm doing. What I want you to understand is is what happens next in Egypt. Because what happens in Egypt is, is that God brings the plagues along, and the last and final plague is where he sends the angel of death throughout Egypt, and God kills the firstborn male of every Egyptian. And then Pharaoh says, okay, you guys can go get out of here, they're mourning, they're deaf, but then after they get done mourning, now they're angry. And they said, we're going to go get those Israelites, those little Hebrew boys, and we're going to put the the sword to them. We're going to annihilate them. And so they take after Israel. There's a million plus people. And all of a sudden, they come to the Red Sea. Their backs are against the Red Sea. In the distance, they see the dust of the chariots from the, the Egyptian army coming after them. And they know they don't stand a chance. And so what happens with the Israelites? They cry out to God and they yell at Moses. And here's what they say. You have led us out here to kill us. Have you led us out here, God, to kill us? You and Moses. Is this what you've done? And what does God do? He hears and he responds. Because immediately what God does is he talks to Moses and they set out this plan and they go up to the Red Sea and God brings a mighty wind and he parts the Red Sea and all of Israel, one million, all their cattle, their cats, their dogs, all the little critters, they all cross the Red Sea. They get to the other side, they go on bare ground and Pharaoh says, oh, my army going to go right after them, right into the bottom of the Red Sea and they're going to take their chariots and we're going to kill those guys. And God closes the Red Sea on them and drowns all of Pharaoh's army. You see, that's what God is doing. And by the way, he's he's got this this rhythm going on. I could spend the rest of the day giving you examples of that just from the Old Testament. People cry out, God hears, he responds. That's what he does. And it's not because people are really awesome, because we're not. God is just aware of what's going on in the lives of people. It's one of his character attributes, his omnipresence. In other words, he he knows everything going on at the same time all around the world with everybody's life. And, And the problem that we have with this is that we get kind of messed up on it. Now, this whole thing really hit David, and David is probably the most proficient worshiper ever to walk on planet Earth. He worshiped God like nobody else ever has or probably ever will. Just an amazing lover of God and worshiper. And so David gets this thing, and in Psalms 8, his mind is blown because this is what he says. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place... Here it is. What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care about him? In other words, you're the God of the universe. You put the stars into its expanse. I look at all this stuff and I have a limited view at this time and point of all the things that are going on in the universe and I see all of that and I think to myself, you would take time to know me, that you would even care for me, that you would listen to me, that you would be aware of me and it blew his mind. Just to think of such a simple truth, because in our time in the church, we don't think deeply about things. We look at them quickly, and then we move on to something else. And we miss out on the reality and the beauty that the God of the universe, the creating force of the universe, created all things intimately, is aware of you. The problem is we have this ambiguous Thought process of us in the church, and that's the way we look at it. That God cares about us collectively as a church. We, the church, us. And that's the language that we have. And we need to, that's true, but we also need to get it out of our mind that that's the only way God looks at us because God looks at you. The individual. He knows everything about you, he knows what's going on in your life. Matter of fact, that's what prompted David to to write Psalm 39, because all of a sudden he's going like, the God of the universe does all this stuff, he knows everything about my life. And in Psalm 139, he says, "'O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down, and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether.'" Jesus in Luke chapter 12 said, why even the hairs on your head are numbered. For some of us, it's not that hard. He's aware of all of that. And this is a profound truth that we need to just marinate in. We need to sit, let it wash over us. It's a simple truth that God has for us. And here's where I think most of us fall. We would say something like this. Well, I believe that. My problem isn't that. My problem is that God answers no so often. I believe he answers prayer, but I just think he says no a whole lot. That's my issue. God God doesn't answer like I want him to. Well, I want to throw a couple of things at you. And I contend that God answers yes far more often than what we ever think or what we give Him credit for. And that's the first thing that I want to bring to your attention, is that probably because of our sinful nature, we're very quick to give credit where credit doesn't entirely belong. We like to give credit where credit doesn't completely belong. Now, let me tell you something. Over the years, I have learned something about myself. And when it comes to mechanical things, like working on a motor, working on a a lawnmower or a weed eater, I'm just no good. I'm really bad at it. I want to be good at it. I want to fix those things myself. But the lesson I learned a long time ago is as soon as I start to try and fix something on a motor on my truck or on a car or my lawnmower or something else, it costs me twice as much to get it fixed. Because first of all, I mess it up. I bought the parts, I mess it up, and it costs me twice as much to get it fixed as after I've messed it up. And so I'm just no good mechanically. I am just not. But I have friends that are really good mechanics. I mean, it just blows my mind. We're standing there looking at the motor and I'm going, what's that thing? That's the motor. Oh, that's cool. And then they look and they say, hey, give me a nine 916 wrench, and I go, I go oh, oh, nine Yeah, and I hand it to them, and they put it on this nut, and they start. And I'm going like, "How did you know that was nine sixteenths?" Oh, I just know. And then they say, "Give me a five eight socket," and I get five eight sockets. And and when I think they do it on purpose, just to shame me. <laughs> I think they like making me feel bad about how inept I am as a mechanic. When they get done and they've done an amazing job, I'm standing there and going like, "This is amazing." And how ridiculous would it be to me if I said, hey, uh, what was that wrench you used to fix my, my truck? Can, can I, that wrench is amazing. That's an awesome wrench. Hey, can I take it with me? Can I borrow it? Because I think I might have a project where it could really help me out. You don't give praise to the tool. You just don't. You give praise to the one who operates the tool. Think about that just for a second while I Still a hump or two. Let me see if I can explain this in a, in a little bit different way. Uh, by the way, the, you know, you give praise to the giver of tools. That's a theological term. If you're taking notes, you might want to write this down. It's called common grace. Common grace. So um, if you have a... Let me unpack this with Priscilla my granddaughter who has a a pretty big heart issue at three years old. So I want you to understand it this way because I think it will help us. So without the doctors who have a very specific skill set and without the very specific surgical instruments that they have to do their operation, without all the specific monitors that monitor all of the stuff that goes on in Priscilla's little body, Without all those specific tools and those really high-tech things, our Priscilla would not be with us today. And and so, um, we want to praise God for it, but ultimately, they're just tools in the hand of God to bring about the will of God in her life. They're not to be praised, but rather, the God who gave them to us is to be praised, You don't praise the tool, you praise the giver of the tools. That's common grace. So the MRI machine or the the thing that does the TC scan, they're common grace. And they are a grace given to all mankind by a merciful God despite the fact that we don't deserve an MRI machine or a CT scanner. We praise God for them, but in the end, they're just tools. And I don't praise tools. I praise the giver of the tools who used them as though he saw fit. Now, let me, let me even bring this even a little bit closer home for us because we really need to understand that when, when God hears us, he responds. And you may not know this, but back on May 6th, just this year, one of the youth in our church by the name of Zach Weston went to the hospital to have his appendix taken out. And when he got to the hospital, they did a CT scan on him because they wanted to make sure it was the appendix that was causing all the problem. And sure enough, it was the appendix that was causing all the problem. So the surgeon went in, and he removed the ruptured appendix, and he cleaned out everything. And then Zach had to stay a couple extra days in the hospital on antibiotics to make sure that he didn't get an infection from the ruptured appendix, and so that everything was going to be okay. But during that time in there, the lab technician that took the CT scan saw something, abnormal in Zach. So this, the lab technician got together with the radiologist and the doctors and said, here's what I found, this is what it looks like, what do you guys think? And so they had this consultation, and they got everything worked out, and so what they saw was this lump on Zach's hip, and, and so after they found the lump, they, they met with um, Zach's mom, and according to the doctors and the scan that identified it, it is LCH. Don't ask me to tell you what that stands for. It's just not good. Okay? And you can look it up, but not now. After church, look it up, okay? But here's the thing about the LCH. The medical field is still debating on how to classify LCH. And at this time, it is classified in one of two ways it's either an in immune dysfunction or it is a rare cancer. And in either case, it's not the news that a parent wants to hear about their kid. You don't want to hear, hey, your kid has LCH. Because all of a sudden, it sends you into panic mode because you don't really know what it is. Then you look it up online, and then you're horrified by what it is. And so on the heels of having an apodectomy, Little Zach and mom and dad were sent off to Salt Lake City, the children's primary, where they're going to run a battery of tests, not even a week later. A battery of tests are going to go on him. They do a full body bone scan on Zach. They do blood uh, draws on him. They're looking at every possible case and scenario. And after a full day of doing all this stuff, and talking with doctors and nurses and specialists, and their heads swimming, they go off to their relative's place, they have a, a, a dinner, and then they go to sleep and they rest. And they wake up in the morning going like, okay, we're going to hear from children's primary and we're going to find out what the results are about what's going on. But no, that's not going to happen because all of a sudden, Terrell, Zach's dad, he's doubled over in pain, he can't even talk, he can't even grunt out his name. So they have to rush him to, the, to emergency. How do you like that? You go to Salt Lake City and, hey, we're going to take care of... It. No, we're going to take care of Dad because he's a big sissy. Can't <laughs> handle the pain. Notice he's not here. <laughs> he had some kind of an infection in his lower GI. That's all they know. They got it cleared up. They got it taken care of. But now, now, Brianne and Zach are sitting in the emergency with their dad for three hours and the phone rings and it's children's Primary. Children's primary says this. And by the way, they sent a CD from the lab here in Lander down with them to children's primary that showed them the scan that they took here. that showed the lump. After they used all their top machines, high-tech, everything on Zach, the doctor comes back and says, we've looked at all the scans, we've looked at all the blood work, we've looked at everything we did, and here's what we know. Zach is a normal, healthy, eighth grade boy. There is no, no lump on his hip. There isn't anything. We can't find anything. So he's, he's just fine. He's great. But we do want to see him in three months. And we're going like, okay, yeah. So and it's like, you know, take it off. And they're like, woo you know. Let's go celebrate at Costco. Which is what they really did do, too, by the way. So... Here's my point in this story about Zach, is the Westons? they get back to Lander. Here's what happened in Lander before they left. When they found out that, that LCH was on the hip of Zach, who did they get a hold of? First thing they did is they sent out a text to everybody in their small group and said, pray, this is what's going on. Then the women's prayer ministry meets on Monday, prayed. And they got a hold of other people in the church and around the community and said, pray. They got a hold of friends and family far near, and they said, pray. And so you've got this army of people who are praying, and, and between the CT scan in Lander and the scans that they did down in Salt Lake City, in that time frame, God did something. But when, he, when they came back and they told them, hey, there's nothing there, guess what people in Lander said? Stupid doctors can't even read a scan right. Stupid radiologists, poor little lander. We get these people that aren't that smart. We get the the bottom of the barrel. That's not even true. See, what happens is people miss out because what we want to do, we want to take the miracle of how God said, I I heard you and I answered you. And then what happens is we want to turn it around and go like, yeah, they're so stupid up there. They can't get anything right. Rather than going, hey, let's praise God because what God did was amazing. God took that spot and absolutely removed it. He cleared up his little body and he is a a living example of God hearing and responding. So, the thing that we do, and I'm coming back that I contend with, is that we're way too quick to give credit where credit doesn't completely belong. And the second thing is we don't keep track of what we actually ask God. I mean, we ask God for all. It's kind of like, you know, we ask God for stuff and, and he, he says yes, and then we're kind of like kids at Christmas time. They get a ton of stuff for Christmas. Like, I mean, you know, as a parent, you, you've given them all this stuff. I mean, it is sickening how much you've given to them. And after they get get done opening up everything and they look out the window of the house and they're looking and then they come back and they go like this, well, I'm really mad this Christmas because I didn't get a pony. You're like, I just just blessed you with more than what you can ever use. And the little kids, their whole attitude is like, well, you know what? Billy got a Nerf gun that shoots 7,000 rounds per second. Mine only shoots 2,000 rounds per second. I'm really mad. You want to take that Christmas stocking that you had little stuff put into, a chocolate orange, stuff it back in the back and just wind it up and let them have it. BAM! Merry Christmas, filthy animal. But we don't do that because we love our kids. But the, the point is, is that's a lot like what we're like with God. We ask for stuff, and when we don't get it exactly the way we want it or the way we think God should have answered, we become like pouty little kids at Christmas time, and we don't function very well. And so, you know, let me kind of give you a, a bit of a, a, an insight to that, because when we get stuff from God all the time, we just never thank Him for. Like when my dad had his stroke... The stroke affected the right side of his brain, which affected the left side of his body. The left side of his body became kind of like nothing. His left arm was like this big sausage, hanging there, swinging around. He actually asked the doctor to amputate it, take it off because it just got in the way. The doctor says, no, you need it for balance. He's like, oh, okay. But listen, nobody in the family, the day after my dad had a stroke, woke up in the morning and said, God, I want to thank you that my brain is operating absolutely the way it should because when my brain operates the way it should, my body functions the way that you created it to function, and, and now I can do all kinds of things. Nobody in our family did that. We should have, but we didn't. It it, it just even comes an answer to prayer on the little things like, give us today our daily bread. We just don't see it. And so I think there are are reasons why he says, why we think he says no so often when it's actually a yes. Now, let me do tell you some reasons, and I'm trying to do this quickly, tell you why he says no sometimes. Sometimes you get told no because there's a lack of obedience. Let me just show you what I mean through Matthew chapter 7. This is what Jesus said. Asking it will be given to you. Seeking you will find. Knocking it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks it will be open. Everybody who's been in church, spent a little bit of time in church, understands and knows these verses. Like it's one of those things we're going like I'm seeking. I'm asking. I'm knocking. I'm seeking. I'm asking. I'm knocking. We're doing all this stuff, and yet we seem like we're not getting any answer. There's no breakthrough. But if you continue to read the rest of the text, it gives you a greater understanding of what it looks like and what it means. It says, Or which of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, you will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Now you see what's going on here. You see what he's setting up. Here's what God's saying to us. He's saying, if you give your children good things and you're evil, how much better will I be than you? Because my patience is unlimited. My holiness is unlimited. My kindness is unlimited. How much better of a father will I be than you? And then he ties the whole thing of him being a good father to the idea of asking, seeking, and knocking. Because what it is is that having him hear us and respond. That's what it is. Let me tell you what Jesus said in John chapter 15. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. But you see, it's, it's what Jesus does is he moves on into John. He says, it's my words, if you abide in them, if you hear me and you obey me, then ask whatever you want and I'll give it to you. There is a process in it that we seem to, to forget. So I'm just going to say this. If you're not walking in obedience, if you're in a rebellion against God, he's not apt to say yes a whole lot to you. Let me just give you a couple of more as we move on real quickly. Uh, in 1 John chapter 3, John says this to the church. Beloved, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him. Because we keep His commandments and do what pleases Him. And this is His command, that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as He has commanded us. So let me just be really brazen with you. Let me just kind of, you know, you might be thinking he's stepping on my toes. I'm trying to kick you in the shins right now, so pay attention. If you're bitter, unforgiving, angry, resentful, jealous, or proud... You should not expect to hear a yes a lot from Jesus. Let me give you one more, and then I'll give you a few clarifying statements to wrap it all up. 1 Peter 3, 7. Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. Show honor to the women as the weaker vessel. Now, ladies, don't get all jacked up. Don't go there. The weaker vessel thing literally translates porcelain. Put that in your mind. Porcelain. And if I were to contextualize that to 2019, it would sound something like this. Hey, guys, don't treat your life wife like one of the boys. Live considerably with her as your wife and treat her like porcelain. But listen to what he says next. Since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. You see what, Jesus, what God's saying there? He's saying, treat your wife with respect, honor her, treat her with dignity, do all these things, and, and because if you don't, if you disrespect her, if you don't treat her the way I told you to, if you don't do the things I'm telling you to do, it's going to hinder your prayers. Oh, that's why my prayers don't get past the ceiling. Because I treat my wife like she's a nobody. Well, hello. You know, I I just really think that what God wants us to understand is that when we're obedient to Him, when we walk the way He's called us to walk, when we love and encourage our wives the way we're supposed to, when we don't rebel against Him, then His face will be towards us. His ears will be attentive to us. To our cries. But he says this. He says, if you disrespect, if you disobey, my face is against the wicked, against those who rebel against me. So there's two things that I'm going to quickly tell you that I'm not saying. And you need to write this down in the not category, okay? I'm not saying that you have to be perfect for God to hear your prayers. Even Jesus, when he was teaching his disciples, the Lord's Prayer said, forgive us our trespasses, that's our sins, as we forgive those who trespass sin against us. Jesus knows we're going to mess it up. Jesus knows we're going to fall down, but he tells us to get back up and to, and to try again. And, and so we don't have to be perfect. We just have to be pursuing God. In John 9.31, here's what, what Jesus said. We know that the Father does not listen to sinners. Uh Uh-oh, bad news for all of us because who in here is not a sinner? Who in here is a sinner? Oh, you guys need to put your hands up. Get them up now. Oh. So sad. I'll take it for you. We're all sinners. But go, let's let's keep going. But we know that God does not listen to sinners. But if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Did you get that? You, you're a sinner, sure. But if you're a worshiper of God, a pursuer of God, he hears you. So you don't have to be perfect. We're just pursuing. And the Bible says that in that place, God hears. So I'm not saying you have to be perfect for God to hear your prayers. If that were the case, no one would hear the prayers. No one would have their prayers answered because... We come through the cross of Christ to the grace of God and we're actually told in Scripture that we can boldly approach the throne of grace with confidence. We pray with confidence. We pursue with confidence. We chase with confidence. Here's the second thing I am not saying. I am not saying that your obedience to God makes you Aladdin and God the genie in the lamp. That you can just, because you do what you do, the right thing, that you can rub the lamp and God will have to give you everything you want because you're, obeying what God said to do. That's not the whole thing. Everybody loves this little statement, "The God's in control. And, and, and it's really quite comfortable because we see it on coffee cups, it'll be on bumper stickers. The theological term for that is God is sovereign. God's sovereignty is a warm blanket for the soul. We like to know that somebody's in charge of the stuff that's going on around us. He sees beyond what we see. He understands things that we cannot understand. On our best day, We can barely see a shadow of the truth. But through His goodness and through His sovereignty, He governs so that there are times that you're going to be told no because what's most glorious to God and what's best for you is to hear a no. So, here's what I want you to get out of this from God. God hears and Response, And this is the simple truth. So I, I don't know where you're at this morning. And I know that prayer is, it seems to be more difficult for us who have a whole lot of stuff going for us. You go to places where life is hard, and it seems like they pray with a whole lot more passion, a a whole lot more fervency, a whole lot more desire. We're, We're really smart. We like to study, but we don't have a lot of passion in our prayer. But what I really want you to understand is that when we step in and become more passionate in our pursuit and prayer of God, he does something in our soul. It's so that, so that we know that he can hear us. We know that. And so let's just, let's just do this. What do you want to say to God? Throw out all those fancy little acronyms about prayer and, and do this. Tell God what you need. Tell him what you want. Tell him what you want him to do in you, what you want him to do in others. And maybe you're struggling today. Maybe you're you're going like, man, I'd really like to do that, but I struggle with unbelief. You're in good company. Both Peter and Thomas said to Jesus, help me in my unbelief to believe. Jesus said, okay, I can do that. And maybe... Maybe this morning, your prayer is that you're not well physically. You're just not well, and you need prayer. Maybe you know somebody. Somebody you love is sick. Maybe your kids are making you crazy, or they're crazy. Maybe there's a relationship that you're in that has turned highly dysfunctional. Maybe, and just maybe, you're saying, I'm really great right now. And I'm going to tell you, and you say, I really love Jesus. I really love God. And I'm going to tell you, that too is a gift from God. So, I want you to understand this morning that God, in His grace, has His ear. He will hear what you have to say, and He will respond. So, what's your prayer? Now, uh, I'm going to pray here in just a second. But I want you to know that if you need prayer, if you need prayer for healing, you need someone to anoint you and pray for you for healing, go back to the coffee bar. That's where our prayer time is. That's where our prayer station is. If If you need to pray, if you want someone to pray with you, if you want to pray with somebody else, you need whatever the prayer is, whatever it is that you're saying, I need God to hear me on this and then I need God to respond to me on this. Go back there. That's a place where we do prayer. Our Father... For a thousand times you have shown your mercies to us and we didn't even know it. We didn't even ask for it. For the fact that you know and that Hebrews tells us that you're sympathetic and you know exactly how we came here today, exactly where we're at, exactly what our shortcomings are, exactly where our pride is, where we're struggling, where our fear is, where our unforgiveness yet is. And yet you hear and you will respond. So I, my prayer is, simp, is that the simple truth would just haunt us a bit today by your spirit, that we would have a deep understanding that there's so, so many things that you want us to know. And there is no such thing as privacy with you. There is no such thing as secrets with you. You know what we think. You know what the desires of our hearts really are. And so my prayer is is that you would build up faith in us. You would build up prayer in us. And that we would know the rest in the fact that you would hear us and that you respond. We thank you for this. In Jesus' beautiful name we pray. Amen.